Hello and welcome to All in the Addicted Gamblers podcast. My name is Brian and I haven't placed a bet since July of 2014 and with me always is Jeff Wasserman. Jeff, how are you? Hello, Brian. Good evening. I have not placed a bet since July of 2015 and we have a great interview tonight. We do. It's Associate Professor Sally Gainsbury of the University of Sydney, Director of Gambling Treatment and Research Clinic and founder and leader of the Technology Addiction Team Brain and Mind Center. Dr. Gainsbury, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Brian and Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little background on yourself and what it is that you do. Absolutely. I am by training a clinical psychologist and I worked initially in the mental health and and addictions field. I've moved into research, which I've done throughout my career. And my research started looking at prevention strategies. So as an undergraduate student, when I was working in bars in Australia and working in the pokies room and earning uh, $17 an hour and looking at people with $900 on the machines, leaving with nothing, that that kind of boggled my mind thinking, what what is going on here? And so I studied gambling and I did my thesis in in honours and PhD on, on gambling and gambling disorder and learned a lot about it. I did my initial work looking at creating warning signs for pokies, as they're called here in Australia, or slot machines or fruit machines or VLTs. They have many configurations. They are the number one leading cause of gambling problems, typically in most jurisdictions. So I looked at taking that little sticker that was on the side of the machine and actually making a warning sign in the middle of the screen using technology to make that more uh, apparent to people. Using that same line of reasoning and looking at technology, I shifted to looking at internet gambling, which was really emerging, obviously, uh, and continued to, to look at that area of how is the form of gambling changing through emerging technologies? What is it about internet gambling versus uh, land-based gambling? Then looking at you know gaming and gambling convergence. So my research is really focused on understanding gambling, gambling problems, gambling behaviours, people who gamble, and the impact of new technology in terms of the opportunities and benefits and how we can capitalise on that not just to create new gambling products, my focus is on how to use that technology to minimize gambling harms. Would you also, if you could speak to just Australia in general, we're based in the US, most of our audience is in the US, although there are people in Australia who do listen, who I'm sure will be very happy that we're talking with you. Um, If you could just give us your overall impression of gambling in Australia, sort of the arc of it and where it is now. Right, big topic in about 30 seconds. Uh, Statistics-wise, Australia are the number one gamblers in the world, which means that per capita, per person, Australians spend about double most Western countries. We're not just a little bit the leader, we are really outpacing the world. We have a huge number of uh, pokies, gaming machines, um, located across the country. These are not just in major casinos. We have one or two casinos per major city. But we have a proliferation of machines in hotels, bars and clubs. And hotels are um, kind of like a bar, I guess you would say. Uh, But these clubs, they're neighbourhood venues, they're not for profit and they have uh, hundreds of machines. So these are not, you know, a small little venues. These can be huge organisations, huge uh, venues with maybe 500 machines located in pretty much every suburb. So gambling is extremely accessible in Australia. It's a highly accepted pastime. There's not a lot of stigma about engaging in gambling. We have most forms of gambling available. So it's really sort of part of the culture and has been um, very well taken up by the Australian people. Although of interest, the gambling prevalence rate is very similar to the rest of the world. So, so when you say that you're number one, you're, you're, I'm, I'm a bit confused. You're not number one in terms of the prevalence rate, but you're number one just in terms of the number of gamblers? It's the gambling expenditure that Australia leads the world. Okay, so, so in terms of revenue, yeah. yeah. It's a rev- so it's a revenue issue. Now, you mentioned the two things that, that crossed my mind as you were um, speaking about it, and that is opportunity to gamble or accessibility forms of gambling and also the culture does do you think that the culture in australia in australia lends itself to a you know a a more prevalent uh prevalence uh higher prevalence i should say of gambling in within the the continent the culture and the accessibility almost go hand in hand a little bit. So obviously the culture of Australia is changing. We have a lot of, well, not currently, but we typically have a lot of immigration, um, obviously recording during COVID times. Right. But 
the fact that gambling is highly accessible, it's also a relatively safe venue. Um, they're widely available, so you can gamble at any time of day in any location. You don't have to travel very far. But you don't need to speak the language. It's open 24 hours a day, so anyone that's doing shift working or working odd hours, um, the venues are comfortable and safe and protected. So, for example, for women, for older people, for migrants, uh, for anyone that doesn't have another entertainment option, it's highly available. And the culture is such, obviously, that it's just a mainstream pastime. So it's not only appealing to a particular, you know, group of individuals, but obviously it is shifting. So gambling participation is decreasing in Australia. There is an increasing number of entertainment options and other activities that are available. And particularly poker machines are not being taken up by the current generation to the same extent as previous generations um, but we do have sports wagering online and race wagering. Uh, so there are, you know, internet gambling is, is available as well. Um, one of the issues that we always notice with Australia is uh, football and football jerseys and the advertising of sports uh, books on football jerseys. Why is that so prevalent there um, versus, well, I guess just why is that so prevalent there? So when I was a kid, there was cigarette companies sponsoring football and the, the cup was called the Winfield Cup, which was a cigarette manufacturer. So it's obviously shifted as uh, tobacco has been banned as sponsoring sport. There was a bit of a vacancy and there was some interesting legislation that passed that essentially opened up the internet gambling market around 2008 when um, the internet gambling market opened up across state borders, there was obviously a vacancy of, you know, sports looking for sponsorship, sports looking for betting partnerships. Part of the betting partnerships is quite important because it means that there's data sharing and sports integrity agreements in place, which are designed to protect the sports. It's also about some of the sports getting some of that revenue from the wagering that's being done on them. Um, but the, the advertising is quite interesting. There has been some rollbacks in terms of what was permitted. So we now have no gambling ads while the sports are running, particularly during the day. Um, the, the jerseys remain, the on-field signage remains, but there has been rollback in things like the talking heads um, doing the promotions during the game. So there is an awareness of that impact, particularly on young people. Although that this has been happening again since around 2008, it's really been increasing. The prevalence rate of gambling hasn't changed. We have seen a shift in terms of more people coming through to our clinics with internet and sports wagering problems, um, and that's more likely to be younger people as well. So it's still a bit of a waiting game to see that cause and effect is quite difficult to tease out. It's likely to increase awareness, but it's very difficult to pin down on whether the people who are currently betting would have done so if they hadn't seen a jersey on the, on the sports field, for example. And your focus area is on the pokies, or as we call it, slot machines or VLTs. Is that right? So I look at uh, technology, and so pokies are one area that have been hugely affected by technology. But I also look a lot at internet gambling and um, the convergence of gambling and gaming as well. So gambling is really one field that it hasn't really shifted in, say, 200 years. You know, you look back at sort of the types of games that are being played. It's been relatively stable. And internet gambling is, is starting to disrupt, the, the create new activities, not just shift them online but change them as well. Do, do you have uh, in-play betting uh, within, within your sports betting? We don't. So Australia's internet gambling is relatively contained compared to some other jurisdictions. We don't have casino, poker, slots, bingo. We only have wagering and no in-play or micro-betting via the internet. You can phone up uh, or in person. If you're in a venue, you could place a bet on the in-play, but not online, at least not on a, a regulated Australian site. And you mentioned you're a clinician. What treatment is available to those who seek it? So I'm the director of the University of Sydney Gambling Treatment Clinic, which is fully funded by the New South Wales state government through a levy on the casino. We provide uh, cognitive behavioural treatment with an emphasis on the cognitions and the cognitive change. We're currently providing that via remote, so Zoom and um, teleconferencing, which has been really successful. And it's actually been one of the nice opportunities to come out of COVID that we've there's been some hesitation about moving online when we were forced to do so. It really made this um, a great experiment to see that our clients are really responding to online therapy. It's been very effective. Our attrition rates have been lower. We've had fewer people missing appointments. So it's been a really good benefit. And we certainly plan to continue to provide this remote assistance uh, after, you know, when we do go back to face-to-face -face as well. 
I, I, I went to therapy two different sets. Uh, you know, I think I had a, my state that I lived in when I first was aware of my addiction. I, I was able to get, I think, 16 free sessions. Uh, and then after that, I would have had to pay. I, I stopped. I ended up relapsing. And then again, I, I went to another group of free sessions. Um, but I found that talking was the, was the main thing that helped me. And that's how the podcast started was, what's a free way I can do this? And so I just started talking with my friend and telling him my story about my addiction and what happened. And that is how we grew into what we're doing now. And Jeff did the same thing. He came on and he shared his story. And we find no shortage of people who will come on here and share their story. What is it about talking? What is it about expressing yourself that helps with easing the pain of the addiction? Well, that's certainly an hour of conversation right there and probably your better place to, to describe it than I am, Brian. I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, I mean, I think that recovery from uh, any mental health problem can be a really long process. We see people at all stages. Unfortunately, most people who do seek treatment tend to wait until it's a crisis point in their life. So the problems are really entrenched. Yeah, that, that's, it's very common across mental health and particularly gambling problems. Although in Australia, gambling is relatively accepted, gambling problems are highly stigmatized. And um, we find that in other cultures as well, that, that saying you have a gambling problem, asking for help is very difficult. A lot of people deny that they have a problem to, them, to themselves, to others. They try and hide it. They try and take care of it themselves. Um, and the problems become entrenched without like a really clear step. There's no sort of single event that catapults you from sort of a low risk or a moderate risk into sort of severe harm. That pathway and journey is different for different people. So unfortunately we do see people at relatively late stages. One of what I aims of my research is to try and encourage people to seek interventions, which I use as a really broad term, uh, to try and encourage people to seek interventions of some form early as possible in that start that journey towards harm because if people started to for example set a deposit limit or take a break or put some restrictions on their gambling before those harms become severe let alone moderate even like just at those really early stages then that could curtail the problem they could even potentially continue to gamble at sustainable levels as things start to get more you know moderately difficult there are still avenues that people could take that might need less sort of intensity as a face-to-face -face appointment. There might be like a phone counselling or just putting some blocks in place, putting some sort of restrictions, talking to your friends or family. But then once you do become really, those problems become quite severe and those patterns of behaviour entrenched, there's huge levels of what we would call erroneous beliefs or some people call cognitive distortions, which is all the sort of the, the chasing the losses, the superstitious behaviours, the belief that oh, I've just got to do it this way or I figured it out, I, I know how to beat this. Even though there's probably a part of, of you that knows that's kind of not true, it's the, that belief and that emotive act action still motivates the behavior so that becomes a really entrenched cycle of behavior that then you kind of cut off your friends and family potentially you've isolated you've withdrawn you've got a whole lot of other you know distress going on in your life understandably and then there's a lot more to build up from so that's when sort of getting back to your question talking it through solves a couple of of problems there so one is it brings to light those erroneous beliefs when you say something out loud or describe it to someone else that you a little bit kind of know is not true, you have to sort of admit and face up to that. And saying it out loud, and in particularly ideally in a non-judgmental place, can, can help that process. And then you say it out loud a lot. And that helps kind of take some of the power away from that thought. Because the idea is that we all have thoughts. We all have thoughts that aren't true. But the more we can recognize that it's just a thought, it doesn't have to motivate my behavior you're taking that power away and just letting that thought be there it's not about removing it or changing it but reducing its ability to motivate your behavior so talking is really powerful in that sense and then the other thing that that therapy or talking can do particularly in a non-judgmental setting is it creates that ease and it removes that denial and all that effort that someone's got in place to hide the problems and to to avoid the problems and avoid dealing with it when you're talking about it and you're feeling accepted for it you can kind of get on with your life in other ways because you're now no longer putting so much effort into hiding your problem, um, you know, even from yourself. You can start to put the effort into trying to overcome it and change your life in, in a new direction. It's not about, you know, changing what's been done, but it's about moving forward in a healthy and sustainable way. So that was a very long-winded answer. I apologize. That was a great answer. Thank you.
You know, Brian and I are both involved in support groups, both on the podcast and outside this, the podcast. And a, a common question that comes up for people that are in recovery um, usually has to do with at what point do we tell people about our gambling addiction? Not necessarily the people that are closest to us. In, in other words, it's very important. I think most people agree to tell a spouse or to tell parents for an, a variety of reasons. It's, you know, you can stop the lying and the hiding. You can use that person as a support person. But once we get to the next level of people, let's say colleagues at work or or friends or relatives that are not in the immediate family, there's, there's a, a difference in opinion about at what point is it good and is and could it be harmful? Could it be harmful for one's own personal recovery to disclose the addiction without being ready? What are your thoughts about that? That's a that's a really good question. I would definitely say it's a personal question for each individual. So I wouldn't have a blanket rule on that. I would be thinking. So I, we did some research a couple of years ago looking at the stigma, the stigma of gambling, and particularly with the aim of uncovering why this is a barrier to help seeking and a barrier to recovery. And there are some real um, truths to some of the self stigma that people feel or perceived stigma that if you tell someone you have a gambling problem, they will treat you differently. And we interviewed a lot of people, and some of the people with gambling problems we interviewed had very concrete examples of how this was actually true and that people had treated them differently. Although a lot of people also had some really great stories about how it wasn't true, that they had revealed their gambling problems, usually to someone closer to them, so a personal connection, and it, it had been a helpful thing to do and that they hadn't been stigmatised. They were able to really help them, as you say, in their recovery process. So, And we interviewed um, counsellors as well who had similar stories. So I think it's really about thinking it through, being quite intentional. Is this something you're doing just to do it for yourself, in which case you're, you're, you're happy with them to react how they want, but you want to be truthful or you want to disclose that? Or if you're, you're hoping for a particular behaviour, you might have to be quite realistic about or think through both circumstances. If this doesn't work out, is that going to be you know, still a better outcome since I've disclosed that or not? I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I work as a, a peer recovery specialist a lot. And when I talk about that issue, I often say that you have to do it for yourself because we can't control how our message is going to be received and we can't measure success based upon how it's going to be received, but, but rather based upon whether we're comfortable, whether we think we're moving forward in recovery by you know, shedding that stigma in whatever way, whether it's you know telling people about your um, about your gambling addiction or just disclosing that you that you are involved in a support group or that you reach out and help other people, I think that's that's a really really good point and a, and a good message to to give to people that are struggling. Jeff and I both I think we both started playing table games, dancing around the casino, table to table, something like that. Eventually, we both ended up on slot machines, pokies, the the entire, I mean, that's what really did me in is me sitting there um, for hours and hours on end, not getting up, trying to avoid going to the bathroom, sitting there while they were shoving the vacuum under my feet while they were open late. I also, um, one of the times when I stopped going to meetings and I ended up relapsing, I won on a particular machine. And then I just every time had to visit that machine over and over because I was convinced that I knew how to win on that machine, even though I'm just pressing a button. What is it about the pokey machines that is so addicting, is so engaging, grabs me and I can't get away from it? Yeah, again, a great question. I mean, I'll start by saying that there's nothing magic about the machines and the machines themselves are played by many, many more people who never develop problems than the people who do. So there is got to be, like that tells us alone that it's not the machine, there's an interaction going on there. There's something else above and beyond any of the characteristics we can attribute to the machines. However, we also know that when we're looking at sort of the spectrum of people reporting harms from gambling, the machines are, are, are high up there in terms of their, their likelihood to be that's the type of gambling that's causing the problem. 
So there's, there's an interaction and there's something about the machines. There's some really basic principles that won't be a surprise. The reinforcement schedule is intermittent reinforcement schedule. It's the same thing to get rats to keep pushing a lever. You know, you lose, you lose, you win a bit. You lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose. And you're thinking this, this next loss and some of the really great work being done by people like um, Professor Luke Clark up at the University of British Columbia, um, some work out of the University of Waterloo with physiological reactions to a losing bet is actually really similar to a winning bet because for people, particularly people with um, more likely to have gambling problems, they actually see that loss as just not a win yet, that it, it means the win's about to come. So there's this irrational belief and a, a genuine misunderstanding of how machines work. So I've recently done some work with um, Assistant Professor uh, Sorry, Assistant Professor um, Khalil Philander from Washington State University. And we looked at gaming machines compared to skill gaming machines, which are new types of machines on the market, to look at the understanding of them. Um, and people are quite happy to tell us, I don't really understand how these new skill gaming machines work, but I really understand these slot machines. And they absolutely do not understand the slot machines. So people are saying, you know, that there's, there's skill involved, that chance doesn't, like there's, it's a really easy answer. There is no skill involved in slot machine. Chance is 100% determinant of every single outcome. There's no complexity about it. It's not even hidden. It's written on the machines. But there's something about human behavior that's looking for that bias, looking for that pattern. We, we as humans do not like randomness. We, we seek to understand it. So people with gambling problems typically see those losses as, well, it's about to be a win because it hasn't been in a win in a while. You know, we're not very good at just accepting that the outcome of 10 coin flips might be, you know, might not be evenly distributed. So, you know, then accompany that light sounds, the fact that even when you have a losing bet, it's actually says that you won 20 cents or you bet a dollar, you won 20 cents. And that's, you know, that's the lights and sounds. So there are characteristics of the machines. Some machines do encourage illusions of control by putting something like a spot, slot, a stop button there. So you kind of making people think they are in control, even though they're not. Some machines tell you when the last payout was. So I might say the last jackpot was, you know, X this much money in X number of hours ago. So you're looking at that completely irrelevant information, which means nothing in terms of when the next jackpot is, but thinking, oh, maybe it's going to be soon. So there are some design features that encourage these irrational beliefs. Um, There's some human nature's patterns that are looking for biases, that are looking for these beliefs. The machines can play into them in some ways. So, so for people that don't have a gambling problem. You know, you mentioned a couple of things like um, limits on deposits or cooling off periods. And um, I think in the context of prevention, because Brian and I have often discussed the fact that when we were in the, as they say, throes of the addiction, we would be just completely uh, resistant to any kind of limitations, whether it's somebody even from the casino that would come up to us and say, hey, don't you want to take a break? Or, I mean, it would just infuriate us. But I can see how, how even if I look back at the time before I developed a severe disorder, that perhaps maybe that would have made a difference in, in, in terms of prevention of the addiction from becoming full-blown. Um, and you mentioned about, you know, the, these, I guess they're called cognitive distortions about slot machines, that, hey, this machine's got to pay off soon because I've been losing for the past four hours. So it's not a recognition that the machine is random and each spin is random and independent, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder, would, would an effort to give knowledge to players about the statistics of, of winning on a slot machine and other characteristics that we know are accurate and may be contrary to what a, you know, a, a belief might be to the gambler, do you think that that would also be of assistance in terms of prevention? So a lot of the uh, so-called responsible gambling strategies that governments have in place are underpinned by this notion of informed choice, that to make a, to make a decision that the individual is ultimately in charge of their behaviour, but they must have sufficient information and not be deceived so they can make an appropriate choice for themselves. And part of that informed choice is about making sure people are supposedly to understand how machines or gambling products work, what the outcomes are, how likely they are to win. So earlier strategies had things, um, I think I mentioned, you know, my PhD research, a little sticker on the side of the machine that said, your chances of winning this jackpot are less than one in a million. So that's statistical information designed to provide information. And then the person supposedly goes off and makes a very rational decision 
based on that. However, aforementioned cognitive biases, people are not very good at making rational decisions at the best of times, let alone when they're in a gambling environment. So uh, we have, there is research and there's been some interesting studies looking at when you actually teach people statistics, even gambling statistics. So there was some studies done um, where college students had a semester in gambling specific statistics, and then lo and behold, they gamble just as much as everyone else. So uh, there's a couple of things to that. One is that you can have knowledge and not use it. So it's what's called hot, cold cognition. So outside of the venues, I know that there's no real thing of superstitions and that I'm unlikely to win. But when I'm in there, as you say, in the throes of it, even if you don't have a gambling problem, you're still in that environment. It's encouraging risk-taking. It's, it's you know, not supposed to be kind of a safe, sensible environment. It's a gambling environment. You're supposed to have fun and forget about things and maybe I'll be lucky and maybe I'm the one. So all that information kind of goes out of the window and you just sort of fly by the seat of your pants and it's really an emotively driven um, activity. Um, the other is that people aren't very good at understanding large numbers and I might not think I'm going to win the major jackpot, but I might win something small. And we have these biases and I remember that I won a jackpot. In fact, one of the worst things that can happen to someone is having a relatively large win early on because then that's all they remember. And it's interesting because people often tell me, well, and I actually thought this at the time as well, I'm thinking, well, you, you should remember the losses. The losses are what happens most of the time. So that should be, that's the most frequent thing that happens. That should be what people remember, but it's not. The losses are not salient. The losses just mean press the button again. So it's the wins that are really salient. And when you have that win, you can even have the, the experience of someone else winning. So watching someone win can have that same salience. I've seen this happen. I know it can happen. Why? It's all random. Anyone can have it. And Pokies, unlike some of even table games, have no skill. There's, it's a very equal playing field. Why, why can't this be something I can win? I'm just as likely to win. So there's all these, you know, biases and fallacies that go into encouraging people, regardless of any statistical information you can teach them. So the prevention strategies we use, those signs I mentioned that appeared on gaming machines, they don't say anything about odds. They don't say anything about how machines work. That is important, but not in the moment. What the, machine, what the messages we found are most impactful are ones that encourage people to think about what they already know and what's important to them. The messages that say, do you know how much money you've spent? Do you know how, how much time you've spent? Because we find that above all, what happens when people get these, you know, as you said, long hours of play, they're losing track and they're not making an active decision every time they press that button. And if you think to yourself and go, yeah, I've spent this much money, that's fine. You're then making an active decision. But what we're trying to do is actually prompt people, make whatever decision you want, but actively make a decision. Don't just mindlessly press the button. What's your opinion on the controversial approach called harm reduction in terms of treatment? Can you tell me what you mean exactly? Sure. Sure. In other words, um, for instance, 12-step program like Gamblers Anonymous, and, and my understanding at least is that most clinicians, if you go to get treatment for a gambling problem or a gambling addiction, um, the solution is you have to abstain from gambling, and the treatment has that as the goal. Um, now, there is also a school of thought called harm reduction, meaning it would allow the person with a gambling problem to focus just on reducing the harm that the gambling is causing, and not necessarily abstaining from all types of gambling. So whether that harm reduction calls for reducing the frequency of, of uh, the number of times you gamble in a given week or a given month, or re, you know setting limits in terms of how much you're going to gamble with, uh, things of that nature. But it is, again, used by some as a treatment approach, not in terms of prevention. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So we fundamentally have a non-judgmental approach to the treatment we provide. And that means that part of that is we ask clients for their own goals and they can have whatever goals they want. So that's not for us to tell them what they're here to do or what they're here for. Some people do say they just want to reduce their gambling as opposed to abstain from gambling. Some people say they want to abstain. 
And we ask them again. And people often change their goals when they, they get a little bit into things or they start to have some realizations and changes. Some people who said they wanted to just reduce their gambling decide they want to abstain from gambling and vice versa as well. So it's non-judgmental. It's not for us to say what, what is success for that individual. I recently worked with um, a newly graduated PhD, so Dr. Dylan Pickering just finished his PhD working with me on the topic of recovery. So he spent three years identifying what does this word even mean? You know, there isn't a single conceptual definition of recovery in the gambling field or in the addiction field. As you say, there are some differences of opinions where some people see this as sort of a chronic lifelong issue or even illness. Others see it as temporal Research suggests people do fluctuate in terms of the gambling harms they're experienced at any one point in time and cycle, cycle in and out of the experience of harm. But we found through these, these interviews, um, interviews with the clinicians, interviews with the individuals, testings, treatments, as I said, three years worth of a pretty comprehensive research study, that it is an individual's own definition of recovery is what really actually matters. And it's not for us to tell someone if they're recovered or if they're not or you know, how to define that. But we found about 12 different factors that go into what people conceptualize as recovery, and each of those has a bit of a spectrum. Um, so we've developed this tool, the, the Recovery Gambling Index, that people can use and track how their, their recovery is progressing over time and the extent to which they're maintaining that. Because the, although treatment is obviously crucially important, the recovery phase is most likely one would hope going to last a lot longer than that, but there's very little resources or interventions to assist people. It might be something like I know people do use groups and peer support or, or check-ins, but to be able to have even potentially an app, now we have, you know, technology to kind of track how your recovery is progressing and is an idea we're trying to look at and see how can we support people in really what can be a very vulnerable period, but also a really long and impactful period. You know, and there's not a lot of support specifically for people at that stage. We were talking before we started recording the podcast about stigma and specifically we started talking about the term because I described myself as a problem gambler. What would you say, can we just talk about that in general, right? First off, why is there a stigma surrounding it and what would be the appropriate terminology to use to not place a stigma on anyone? Yeah, I don't know tell you why there's a stigma around it um any more so than any other mental illness i mean gambling is more stigmatized than mental illnesses we've we've have at least in australia been quite progressive in approaches to mental illness and there's a lot of public conversation now and people are really encouraged to share um, mental illnesses celebrities you know prominent figures are, are very people are really sort of trying to create this positive culture where it's okay to say I'm depressed or I have anxiety or you know to label and define and, and move on so gambling is I think more stigmatized because people perceive there to be something about the individual's own sort of fault or cons consideration in their action um, something that you've done to yourself rather than something that's kind of happened to you but I, I won't get into the whole kind of underpinning pinning that. Sure. There is stigma towards problem gambling and more so to the other mental health. However, there are some progressive actions trying to change that. I'm being very aware of my own language. Uh, you know, obviously I speak a lot about gambling. I write a lot about gambling. I'm also the editor of one of the very few gambling-specific academic journals, International Gambling Studies. So we recently published an editorial about the importance of using what we've termed or what's been termed people first language and recognizing that although individuals might have a gambling problem, as I say, this fluctuates. And even if they're in the, you know, the throes of gambling problems or define themselves as a problem gambler, it's not for me, particularly me as an academic or a clinician to, to describe someone in that way, because that gambling is part of a very complex person. And that's not how you should define yourself but it's certainly not how you should define someone else so I've tried to move away from and I, I certainly have done in the past use the term problem gambler or problem gamblers to talk about a whole group of people and in research it's very easy to do because we actually use the problem gambling severity index and we categorize people um, based on their response to you know a nine item questionnaire so it's it's pretty simplistic and reductive reductive language that we're using um, you know it has its place in research but it, I don't think it should have its place in kind of public facing documents where you're talking about an individual so we've been trying to move away it is a lot more clunky I don't have a great term you know someone who has experienced gambling harms or people with lived experiences consumers there's there's no single term but 
um, we're trying to be more, well, at least I'm trying to be more aware of the impact of my language. You know, I've, I've used many different terms. I'm just of the opinion, to me, it's all the same about myself. You know, I have a gambling addiction, uh, whether I'm a problem gambler, a compulsive gambler, a grateful recovering compulsive gambler. I'm a gambler who can't do it anymore because I liked it too much. And so I, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because I do, I, I don't think when I say it just because I, I am, that is something that I deal with having a gambling addiction. So I just say whatever's on my mind, whatever comes to mind right there. And so many different phrases that I hear from everyone that I just say it without thinking. And so it, I, I never really think about it. So thank you for making me think about it. You know, you know, especially with gambling problems, there's been such confusion, confusion, even in, you know, identifying the problem. We've used compulsive gambling, uh, pathological gambling, uh, gambling disorder now. Um, and then, of course, uh, problem gambling can be used generically to describe the whole continuum of gambling problems, or it could have a very fixed meaning in terms of maybe a subclinical identification that you don't quite reach the level of a gambling disorder, but you still have a problem and you're not at that lower level, which would be an at-risk. It's just so damn confusing. Why is that with gambling? Any idea? Oh, I'm not going to take responsibility for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I agree. I agree. And I think it's problematic because the terms we use are, I mean, we need to have consistent terms. And obviously I'm trained as a scientist. So the reason we have labels and terms is so that I can say something in Australia and in America and in, you know, the UK or in Brazil or in wherever we, okay, I understand what that means. And science is generally pretty good at that and gambling field is not. Um, so as you say, so, you know, problem gambling is a safer term to use because it doesn't have a specific definition, which kind of also makes it a useless term to use because it doesn't have a specific definition. It generally talks about someone who's experiencing harm, although in Australia we define problem gambling as someone who's um, experiencing harm or whose gambling has harmed another person. So you can be fine and thinking, I'm great, but your family members are affected, then that's still problem gambling. One thing I'm aware of, again, is defining the behaviour rather than the individual or kind of like the the temporal aspect. So the problem gambling behaviour rather than problem gambling or problem gambler, like just trying to make it very specific. It's about the behavior and the impact of the behavior. It's not the individual or um, an ongoing issue. So it can be temporal in that aspect, which is quite important because in Australia, at least where I am in New South Wales, there's currently some regulation about for staffing venues, their responsibility to recognize the problem gambling behavior and, and act on that. So how you actually define it is, is critically important to allow us to make regulation, to identify it, to um, prevent harms. Because one of the issues with people failing to identify as um, needing help is because this, this picture it's been painted from prevention campaigns are, you know, the kids that are going hungry or the, the people being, you know, going into bankruptcy and these kind of morose, dark, depressing, depraved individuals that people say, well, I'm, I'm not like that. Like my kids aren't eating cereal. Like I've literally seen an ad that's like a little sad girl eating cereal in the dark. I'm like, well, that's not my kid. So of course I'm not a problem gambler. So I don't need to go to treatment, stop gambling, put a limit in place. So we really need to focus more on what I would say the gambling harms. And they're starting to be a bit more focused on this where it's, if you want to prevent harms, then don't just measure the people that meet the PGSI index measure the people who, you know, did skip their rent or couldn't go on holidays or, you know, the lower level and the moderate risk harms because that's where we can really see where the impact is and that's where we can focus on these are the people we can intervene with in relatively low-cost, low-impact ways rather than having to provide treatment as kind of the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You know, one of the things that I notice in working for a problem gambling council in the States is that even those uh, professionals, those behavioral health professionals that mostly deal with um, substance addiction, they're really not very well informed about gambling. And in fact, there is, you know, we, we often spend a lot of time at our council trying to provide training to healthcare professionals, uh, mental healthcare professionals about gambling. Um, and it's, it, it's always disappointing to learn, even though there is such an elevated rate of problem gam- problem gambling among people that are suffering from 
other addictions or mental health disorders, in many cases, they're not even screened for gambling. Is it the same way in Australia? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, So we know from our research that people who seek help for gambling treatment typically interact with multiple professionals throughout their, you know, the recent years and even specifically related to their gambling problem. So people might go to their GP and say, oh, I can't sleep. I'm a bit stressed out or, you know, I've got some physical complaints. They might be seeking help from financial counsellors, legal aid, um, other counsellors. I'm having trouble with my marriage you know, seeking, seeking, sort of treating the, the surface symptoms rather than, and then no one mentioning the underlying cause. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, GPs are pretty short on time. You get, you know, you roll in, you roll out. They can't screen for everything. Um, but they're also not comfortable to have that conversation. Again, that stigma professionals are not immune from having stigma around gambling to ask the question, you know, do you have problems or do you gamble to not actually feel comfortable? Well, if someone says yes, I don't actually know what to say to them or what action to take. Um, there's not a good understanding of how to make referrals. Where are the treatment? Which are the good treatments? You know, there's all these different agencies. I don't know which are the, the good ones. Unfortunately, we even see amongst professionals, we've had our clients say they went for help for financial counseling to help manage, you know, their finances. They mentioned they had gambling. Some financial counselors refused to see them. They stigmatize them so heavily and say, well, you're a gambler. I can't possibly help you with your budget. You're clearly a lost cause. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to advocate on your behalf or help you. Like that, that lack of understanding right there from someone who's in a helping position. And by no means am I trying to say that all financial councils are like that, but it's only been recently that problem gambling has been included in the training for this profession. And it's still an elective of people seeking, you know, financial advice. And this is the most likely place someone will actually be asked about their gambling and they're still not even trained on it. So it's not as part of the training. It's not part of the accreditation. It's not part of continuing professional development, which is why it's it's a very timely question. I think it's a really great pertinent observation. Um, One of the aims we're trying to do at the University of Sydney Gambling Treatment Clinic is create some training and educational resources for professionals for, for counsellors, for financial counsellors, for legal aid practitioners, so they feel confident enough and comfortable having that conversation, which is going to destigmatize gambling. Because you can imagine if every single person that went to a GP was asked about their gambling, that would send the message, it's okay to talk about this. You know, that's very um, powerful having someone just ask you about it, even if it's not a, not your problem. Like eventually that's going to start to change the culture. So if we can train these professionals, develop some resources, develop some educational materials, make it part of the standard questionnaire, part of the training, that's going to have a huge impact, not only on people seeking treatment because they're going to be direct referrals, but in people having that treatment much, much earlier in their problem development. I couldn't agree more. That's, that's really really excellent and ex- excellent advice you know the, the challenge is getting the word out there and getting them to buy into it yeah that, that that's again that's something that we try to do and just in terms of training i mean you know we often hear addiction is addiction is addiction but then when going beyond that and including i personally i think including a behavioral addiction is 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 quite uncomfortable even for many providers of addiction counseling or therapy. I mean, they understand, they can conceptualize a foreign substance being snorted, swallowed, smoked in order to cause the addictive process. But the behavior is something that I think is still lacking in terms of people really having an understanding, even professionals. And that's that's something that I think we really need to do better at. I know we're coming upon the hour, but I want to talk about your study that you did, the impact of COVID-19 shutdown on gambling in Australia, because I I was very surprised when you sent that. Wow, you just did this? This is amazing. Could you just talk about what you found, what how it worked out, just everything about it, really? Yes. So in Australia, um, the all land-based gambling venues, well, basically the entire country shut down on the 26th of March. So I know that's different from, from some places, um, particularly in the States. So the Australian, the state territory governments, everything was shut down and there was a stay-at-home order in force basically across the entire country. So there was no access to any gambling venues. So um, obviously we were all suddenly working, we're still working from home in some, some cases, but it took us a little bit, uh, you know, a week or so to figure out we really have to look at this because this is an unprecedented really sort of what we would call natural experiment. Whereas I mentioned Australia, the country where you can gamble anywhere, like that's not going to change anytime soon. This is an opportunity for us to look at what happens 
when you stop that. Now, obviously, there's all this COVID stuff going on, so it's not a unique experiment to only look at the gambling situation. But we quickly got our acts together and got ethics approval and did a survey. We surveyed um, around 800 people, Australians who had gambled in the past year, because we were looking, wanting to look at the, you know, the, the whole spectrum of people, not just your regular gamblers, but but everyone. So we sent out a survey and we wanted to look at the impact. We wanted to look at two kind of major things was were people um, gambling online more because at the same time, some media reports were coming out in April and May that online gambling expenditure was up. Um, you know, so was Netflix and, and Uber Eats orders. Like everyone was doing things online. So of course online was up, but was this to the extent that it was, you know, displacing the poker machine revenue and was this habit going to stick? So what was going to happen when venues reopened? So look, our sample was recruited just through, you know, community advertisements. It's not representative. It was mostly male. Um, it was mostly, you know, English speaking. So it's not an Australian representative sample. I want to make sure we flag that, that limitation. But what we did find was that um, gambling spend decreased across the board. So it went from about $450 a month to $200 a month. And most people were gambling less or had stopped, 10% had stopped gambling overall. So, you know, that, that makes sense given that, you know, in Australia, pokies are about two thirds of gambling revenue. You know, you shut those off, even though some people were gambling online and probably a lot of people were like, everyone was pretty bored and stuck at home, but there's also not a lot to bet on. We don't have casinos and poker or slots and there was no sporting events. There was some race wagering, but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot. There's only so much esports betting like a poker player can do before they decide that isn't really going to be what's going to get them through the pandemic. So um, unfortunately we did find that there wasn't some increase. So there was about 11% of participants who did increase how much they were spending. And that, and that makes sense. You know, this has been consistent. I've spoken to people who've done similar research in Sweden, in Canada, in the UK. There's a small subset of people who really did, you know, increase their gambling. These are people who are more likely to be classified as experiencing gambling harms. They were having some psychological distress, financial difficulties as well. So interesting as well that in terms of online gambling, most people were gambling online a similar amount as to prior to the shutdown. So this sample already were kind of active online as well. We recruited them online. These weren't kind of your, your pokies players who don't have an email account that were in this survey. You know, we only had 1% of people saying they gambled online for the first time. Again, most people reduced how much they were spending or had similar um, spend, but a small proportion again did, did increase how much they were spending online. So we're doing this research. Interestingly, we've just done, um, a second, a second follow-up wave, and then we're going to do a third follow-up wave because we're trying to track how this is going to change over time, what's going to happen when people go back into the venues, um, and we've had some differences between states. We've got one state that's still shut down and the rest of the country is doing relatively well and has opened up. So we're going to be able to look at some really interesting policy implications of what happens to people, particularly people with gambling harms, when you do restrict access to venues. So just so I'm clear, so... For people that want to gamble online in Australia, they have, it's rather limited in terms of the forms of gambling that you offer online. Well, yes and no. So Australian regulated sites can only offer wagering and lottery products. However, there's nothing stopping you from accessing an offshore gambling site if you so wish to do so. There has been a lot of effort to reduce the number of sites and most of the major sites have withdrawn following um, regulatory actions. However, you know, the, the internet and online gambling sites are, are available, particularly the ones that don't care so much for regulatory actions. Um, so if you really want to access an offshore site, you can. And we did look at that in terms of our respondents. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's surprising to me that there would be a decrease only because, uh, and, and I'm not aware of any uh, studies here in the U.S., but only because I, I work on a problem gambling um, helpline as well. And, you know, I get calls sometimes from people who were gambling in the casinos and brick and mortar casinos. And once COVID shut those down, they, for the first time, a lot of them started to gamble online, whether it was, as you say, sports betting was almost non-existent. But we, at least in, in my state, there was the uh, ability to gamble on casino games online. And of course, um, online gambling tends to cause more problem than 
gambling at a casino, in a brick and mortar casino. So that together with the boredom of COVID and people not going into work and just the ability to have a lot of free time and, you know, frankly, boredom, I would think would have increased the level of gambling during during that time. And I, I wonder how much of it is unique to Australia in the sense that you, you know, maybe some people were not comfortable or not sophisticated enough to go and use the offshore sites rather than, you know, gamble on the, the legal sites that they would be, you know, more app more more willing to gamble on. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, it's not a representative sample. We did find um, people didn't gravitate to it. To, uh, to online like there were people um online poker was probably the most used by people who had never played online poker before um there was some new uptake in things like casino games um lotteries but there was still overall a reduction when we looked at the whole sample and if we think about people who play a slot machine in a venue there's a lot of factors that motivate someone to do that that aren't replicated online. The other thing we had is people saying that they had shifted their gambling patterns because they were aware it was discretionary spend activity and they didn't have discretionary funds anymore. So this, this is also a time where a lot of people lost their jobs. There was also a lot of uncertainty. Particularly, we did this survey quite early on before the government subsidies were very well established kids were pulled out of school. Like this was a really time of turmoil for a lot of people. And because we're looking not just at an only a really intense sample fooled with people who might have more harms, like we did see that, that behavior, that spike, but overall people were able to say, I can't really afford to do this. My kids are at home. Like I don't know what's going on. And they were able to self-regulate. Well, Sally Gainsbury, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. I learned a lot, but also I hope everybody listening learned a lot as well. If you'd like to talk about where people can find any of your work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been such a pleasure. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. You guys are doing great work and I really appreciate the opportunity to be to be included in this work. Thank you. I'm very happy for anyone to email me. Uh, I, we have a, you know, um, technology addiction team that we're working on this kind of broader issue. We've got the gambling treatment and research clinic, my contact details. If you look up on the university of Sydney, Sally Gainsbury, you can find my email address and I'm on Twitter at, at Dr. Sal Gainsbury. So really happy to speak with people offline, um, engage in any further conversation about this or, or many of the other work that we're doing. Well, thank you so much. And of course my thanks to Jeff as always, and thanks for listening.